0: Another edition of American Bankruptcy News podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, Executive Director of ABI. Today we will consider some of the volatile developments in global capital markets and the effect on practitioners in the U.S. and beyond. Much of the current economic turmoil in the U.S. is due to the sharp pullback in the credit markets after years of excess liquidity it's as if the imagery of the wheelbarrows on the street full of unattended money have abruptly disappeared to great consequences all around. Factors contributing to the crunch include the aftereffects of the mortgage crisis that began in subprime lending and promptly spread to other lenders, the unraveling of various structured investment vehicles characterized by high risk and minimal transparency, high prices for energy and other commodities, and more. While the question of whether our economy in the U.S. is in a recession, and if so, how long indeed preoccupies our debate during a U.S. election year, the truth is that the phenomenon and effects of these U.S. developments have no borders. For example, the 185-nation International Monetary Fund this week issued its most detailed review yet of the global credit crisis, warning that markets are under considerable strain. Uh, identifying total losses, including those tied to commercial real estate, reaching as much as $945 billion, according to the fund, a figure that Wilbur Ross, uh, the noted investor in distressed properties, predicts is, quote, on the low side. The report concluded, quote, the current turmoil is more than simply a liquidity event, reflecting deep-seated balance sheet fragilities capital basis, which means that its effects are likely to be broader, deeper, and more protracted, unquote, the report concluded. We'll see if our guest today will agree with this assessment. He's Robert Sanderson, senior partner with KPMG's Transaction Advisory Services Group in Toronto. Bob's practice focuses in the areas of multinational restructuring, with an emphasis on financial institutions. He's also been involved in high-level assignments insurance industry, high technology, energy, and real estate. A past chair of the Canadian Insolvency and Restructuring Practitioners Association, as well as past president of the Insolvency Institute of Canada, he's currently the president of Insol International, where he's traveled the globe working on these issues. Welcome, Bob, to ABI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. First, let's uh, consider today's global Um, identify for us what factors you believe have led us to where we are with a global credit crunch after years of easy credit?
1: Uh, Sam, I'd like to uh, make a couple of observations uh, on what I believe are some of the uh, causes of uh, the current crisis. I believe the the first, and not necessarily in order of importance, is, in many cases, a lack of transparency coupled with a high reliance on the originator's reputation with respect to a wide variety of debt instruments. And this reliance, I believe, in lack of transparency, coupled with the originate and distribute model, which became very fashionable over the last number of years, has meant that possibly the underwriting that would normally have been done where institutions from the get-go are going to hold that instrument on their balance sheets was maybe not as rigorous as one might have expected. But if you think about it, we've also had on a global basis an economy which has been experiencing tremendous growth inflation that has been held relatively in check and hence nominal interest rates that are at historic lows. While currently spreads have widened, it certainly is still very cheap to borrow money where it's available. I think the distribute model also had another impact and that was simply that the residency of the ultimate exposure became distributed very widely, not only within continental U.S., for example, but distributed throughout the globe. I'm reminded of a morning in Shanghai last November where the morning paper spoke of a local Chinese bank having had to take a write-off of over 300 million, as a result of its exposure to the U.S. subprime market, so a kind of global disconnect between the lenders and the borrowers. That's correct, and 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 that's why I indicated earlier in the in, in my comment um, that I believe a lot of the uh, distribution model was based on uh, the reputation of the originator and the credit rating agencies. And as we all know the credit rating agencies have come under some considerable criticism uh, with respect to their participation in uh, this uh, credit uh, crunch in that uh, there is a belief that they were not only providing the the ratings but also were instrumental in working with the originators in designing a product that would fit the rating criteria uh, and a suggestion that possibly there was and maybe still is a bit of an inherent conflict of interest between those two roles.
0: Is there also the possibility that they're rating new instruments that are the product of, uh, let's, let's be charitable and call them a financial innovation, um, that uh, may not have been, used before um, uh, the kinds of uh, uh, securitized investment vehicles uh, on stilts um, uh, where uh, it's, it's not clear um, you mentioned transparency and you know lack of covenants and you know and all the rest this was a kind of a moving target for the rating agencies as well probably
1: well I believe it was I think the other thing is that a lot of what the rating agencies done are based on modeling the various uh, possible outcomes where you've had extended periods of asset appreciation as we have seen in the residential real estate markets in the US but in other countries as well uh, the UK for example has enjoyed a tremendous period of uh, increasing prices in their real estate markets both commercial and residential that it becomes I believe uh A factor that becomes built into the model that people don't necessarily factor in—that values can in fact go down.
0: Right. When things are going well in the U.S., we call that uh, entrepreneurship and the dream of home ownership. When things aren't going so well, we call it something else.
1: Well, there's a a, in in uh, my experience in the uh, insurance industry, um, one of the things that you model into. Uh, certain products when you're designing and pricing them is what the expected default rate is. The one thing that you always know is that whatever you put in is wrong because in in an economy that continues to grow and expand, you've probably overpriced the risk. And in an economy that is challenged, you underprice. Um, And because your provisions are always based on the last six or seven years' experience, uh, of course. Guess what happens? Uh, the delay always hits you at the wrong part of the cycle. That's the thing about cycles:
0: something can't go on forever; it won't. Hmm. What about um, things that made it worse? Things that exacerbated uh, the, the crisis in the, in the, obviously, in the mortgage markets in the U.S. Here, um, a lot of fingers are pointing to obviously loose. Uh, mortgage credit, the non-traditional, uh, loans, uh, people using, uh, their homes as a virtual ATM machine, uh, stripping out equity, you know, periodically, uh, no skin in the game, lenders incentivized to reach and stretch for yield, uh, moral hazard problems, you know, all kinds of issues. Um, what do you, what do you make of those, uh,
1: uh, causes as well? Well, Sam, I wouldn't—I don't think I would disagree with any, that. Any, uh, every one of those probably had, have, has had some impact uh, in the resultant uh, credit crunch that we're all now currently going through. Um, and it's—it's it's like many things in life. Uh, w- excesses uh, tend to uh, uh, eventually come home and uh, to roost. Uh, with consequences that are usually more severe than you would, you would otherwise expect. And that takes me back to where I started. If you think about some of the suggested causes of this crisis, if you look at it from the start of the subprime mortgages in the U.S., the excesses that we're seeing and the lack of transparency are partly driven by the fact that the people that were
0: underwriting the mortgage that
1: were encouraged to seek out the opportunities to help families acquire their first home or a larger home or whatever the case may be, were never planning on holding and having responsibility for what they'd done. They were passing it off to somebody else. Um, And so as long as they could keep passing it on, the incentive to maybe have been as rigorous as you might otherwise have been is obviously not there. I would suggest that one of the results of what's happened now is that once we work our way through this, this problem, that we're going to see a reversion to much more of an underwrite and hold by many of the financial institutions. It won't be for all products and it won't be for all times. But that there is going to be an expectation that we've reverted to some of the more Rigorous underwriting criteria and approaches that have stood most international and local financial institutions very well for for decades.
0: So how do we um, how do we get this uh, toothpaste back in the tube here? is it is it simply a cycle that has to run its course or are there things that uh, we could expect markets to do or central central government central planners uh, to try to limit? you know, the potential global exposure?
1: Well, I think the, uh, and I'm certainly not uh, a, an economist, but my observation would be that the uh, the central banks, in, the, in certainly in the G7 countries, are taking uh, very measured and yet reasonable steps uh, towards uh, providing sufficient liquidity uh, to the system uh, that will allow the... Uh, congestion, if I can call it that, uh, to work its way through the system, um, and it needs to work its way through the system. I would suggest in, a, in an orderly, in an orderly fashion, um, and that will take uh, a number of months. And if you go back and look at some of the statistics that were published back in September, October of 2007. The global banks were holding uh, in uh, the neighborhood of about uh, 250 to $300 billion of loans which they had not been able to distribute and uh, uh, it's my understanding that today that that is now probably less than half. So it is slowly working its way through the system. Uh, banks are able to repair their financial statements, uh, they certainly raised capital as we have seen Uh, particularly by tapping some of the sovereign wealth funds, um, and it will work through the system. Uh, In many respects, uh, the global economy is still in a reasonably strong state, uh, and that will hopefully provide uh, sufficient global demand area to have uh, an understanding of the issues that arise where you're dealing uh, across borders. And I don't believe that any of us can escape it, whether our focus is uh, more orientated towards a consumer practice, where we're dealing with individuals who are facing financial challenges, um, the small entrepreneur, uh, or the uh, multi national. They will all have different requirements and needs, um, but I believe there are a number of common themes. And And The first is that increasingly, we're seeing people actually conducting their business in more than one jurisdiction, and it has become incredibly easy for organizations to source product in other parts of the world. Uh, to sell their product into other parts of the world. And I'm reminded of an example of an entrepreneur who owned a fast food outlet. And he was looking at how he was going to reduce costs. And he discovered that he could actually have the person who was taking the order at the drive-through microphone situated in India, and save (laughs) a few pennies on every transaction. Now, if you then think about what is truly a small entrepreneurial business who is able to take advantage through technology, uh, communications, and various uh, arbitrages between various economies... That is a very simple example, and yet one that clearly, if they got into financial difficulty, could have international repercussions. So I think it's it's because of technology and because of communication that increasingly organizations and individuals are going to have relationships that cross borders, and hence when they get into financial difficulty, You're going to have to have some understanding of the laws in that jurisdiction, property rights, priorities, and how you obtain recognition. The second aspect of the business model that drives, in my view, towards this is capital markets. Increasingly, funding for loans and investment is global in nature and even for relatively small businesses you find that the lending is being provided by organizations who are not traditional market participants in the economy as a canadian we see this every day in that today approximately 25 to 40% depending on the year of the financing for business is originated in the united states much of it from organizations that don't even have an office in the country. And so when it comes to dealing with a restructuring uh, of a business, you find that you are automatically having to deal across borders uh, to work with the people who have an interest in the enterprise. When it comes
0: to um, dealing with uh, uh, banks and, uh, and other lenders, I um, uh, in the wake of, uh, of what's gone on here. Um, do you sense that um, what uh, was old is uh, almost new again in terms of more uh, traditional loan covenants being required, no more uh, covenant light, so to speak, more traditional due diligence, more paying attention to risk and risk management, greater government regulation and oversight. We've already seen some of that in terms of reporting and auditing.
1: Are you seeing that uh, globally? Yes, whenever um, uh, I've, wherever I've traveled over the last uh, six to eight months, uh, one of the common themes uh, that I hear from uh, market participants, and lenders, uh, and restructuring uh, people is quite simply uh, that um, we are reverting back to some of the practices of old. Excuse me. The uh, we're seeing credit being priced certainly more appropriately and I believe arguably at this point maybe even potentially overpriced. Uh, What do I mean by that? Credit spreads became incredibly tight with few or any covenants. Today we're finding spreads much wider than you would have traditionally experienced for similar uh, credits even as much as uh, five years ago. So there is, as many cases, the pendulum has probably swung. Overreacted. Overreacted, and we're now coming back, and we will come back to uh, more traditional uh, spreads, which reflect and are more reflective of of credit risk. There was a very interesting piece that was uh, written uh, by Edward Altman, from the Stern School of Business, who calculated at the height of the market uh, last summer uh, that, in fact, if you looked at historical default rates and recovery rates and applied that to the spreads over uh, nominal uh, risk-free rates, uh, that, in fact, lenders were predictably losing money on every loan because the spreads were so narrow that they were not reflective the um, credit risk that was inherent in uh, the underlying enterprise. For sure, let's um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Canada.
0: We uh, have many ABI members in Canada, and, and many uh, practitioners um, represent clients that uh, have uh, business in Canada. And here in the U.S., of course, uh, it is uh, frequently said probably to the annoyance of Canadians, that if the U.S. economy sneezes, Canada catches a cold. So in light of the slowing U.S. economy and the ongoing mortgage turmoil and all the rest, what's the outlook for the Canadian
1: economy? Uh, Well, um, the phrase that if if you sneeze, we catch a cold is certainly true. But this may, and let me emphasize the may, may. Maybe uh, a time when they, we will only catch the sniffles. If you think about the Canadian economy, it is essentially uh, there are three parts resource base, domestic manufacturing, and export manufacturing. The good news is Canada is rich in resources led. Uh, not only by significant energy resources uh, in Alberta and its neighboring provinces, uh, but also is uh, very well endowed with respect to many of the uh, minerals uh, that are in great demand in the globe today, uh, including those such as fertilizer. The other part of the resource base, which is doing extremely well, is of course agriculture. Now this is a global phenomena, however, uh, it certainly is having a real impact in Western Canada. So the Western Canadian economy is looking to continue to grow and uh, unless the US economy gets into a very prolonged and deep recession, current uh, predictions are that it will continue to grow. U.S. dollar is trading either side of par right. whereas two and a half years ago uh, every U.S. dollar would buy one and a half Canadian dollars and hence gave Canadian manufacturers um, uh, a bit of a competitive advantage right. so yep. the manufacturing in Ontario is, uh, is struggling now of course manufacturing in the U.S. is struggling as well um, and this is really a, a North American, Western, European trend. Manufacturing, in the traditional sense as we think of it, is moving to other parts of the world. And we are having our manufacturing centered more around uh, the value-added aspects of manufacturing, where there's increasing use of technology and innovation uh, rather than traditional um conversion of raw materials into consumables how about uh uh Percent of loan to value is the the quick test. Imagine that, and uh, and so the percentage of the market that was in the alternative uh, market, the what would be described in the U.S. as the subprime market, uh, and was not covered by very strong mortgage insurance, uh, is probably limited to less than five percent of the market, and so the with Real estate prices remaining relatively firm, uh, and in fact continuing in a number of markets to to move upward, albeit at a slightly slower pace than they have over the last few years, um, and a, a an economy that is generally continuing to perform reasonably well, uh, with unemployment rates that are still uh, at or near um, sort of multi-year lows. Well, maybe this is
0: a good uh, segue then to my last, um, you know, question. And we're we're doing this uh, series of podcasts with the presidents of the various insolvency organizations. And you are, as we mentioned, the president of Insol, the worldwide federation of insolvency organizations, of which ABI is a large U.S. Uh, member. And so maybe on. the
1: organization associations um, so that it can be shared in in, in an easy and um, accessible format. Uh, and historically this has been done through conferences, congresses, uh, and various klopia, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, but clearly with the uh, advent of the web enabled technology, uh, we're all learning, just as we are with this podcast, to utilize uh, different uh, uh, different methods of uh, information dissemination. And, of course, the joint project uh, led by ABI uh, and which installs a proud participant of the Global Insolvency webpage uh, is, of course, just one example of that kind of activity. The, the other... Uh, sort of plank of Insol's approach is that it's vital to work particularly with the emerging jurisdictions to ensure that they develop the appropriate infrastructure, the appropriate uh, professionals, judicial capacity, regulatory capacity within their, their country to actually deal with not only cross-border issues, but also to deal with domestic issues. And one of the things that INSAL has been, continues to be very active with, is working with countries such as Colombia, India, uh, a number of the Middle East countries, uh, in developing uh, part of their infrastructure, providing training. And one of the things that you learn and experience as you work with these jurisdictions is that it is important to appreciate and understand that there are sufficiently different cultural and societal expectations as to how things should evolve and work out where there are financial challenges, that insolvency law you interact with people needs to have an appropriate level of of sensitivity and so this is one of the areas that INSOL has taken great pride in being able to bring to uh, working with its member associations but also with a number of the emerging countries is the ability to help sensitize people that there needs to be some flexibility in how you approach situations and of course that for many people in the financial world is is a real challenge because we all come from a home country home jurisdiction where we're very comfortable with the regime that we work with day in and day out and when we have to move into another jurisdiction it would be always nice to think they do it our way but in fact What we really need to be able to understand and particularly work with is how they can do it their way, getting the predictable result, having an appropriate level of transparency in a fairly effective uh, manner is is one of the big tricks and certainly is, is one of the key focuses of INSOL. And what we believe is vitally important is working with our member associations such as the ABI is to take the, the knowledge and the energy of its members and use it to help other countries that are experiencing challenges develop a system that they're comfortable with and yet is compatible and respectful jurisdictions as well well those
0: are all good sentiments to be sure and uh, we appreciate you uh, sharing the install uh, 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 agenda if you will uh, we are about uh, out of time uh, for today but I want to thank our special guest uh, Robert Sanderson current install president with KPMG
1: in Toronto for being with us today thank you Bob thank you Sam and Thanks to uh, ABI for uh, providing this, this opportunity. And uh, also, thank you to ABI for being such uh, a wonderful uh, INSOL member association. Um, and we look forward to uh, a long and uh, engaged future.
0: Agreed. And thanks to our audience for listening. You can hear all previous ABI podcasts from our homepage at abi.org. And so until next time on the Podcast, this is Andrew Donovan.